Hello, and welcome to a special edition of All This and the Oscars 2. I'm today's host, Clarence Moy, joined by Sasha Stone, creator and main content provider of awardsdaily.com. And we are both thrilled to speak to Jeff Orlowski, the director of the upcoming Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. And his excellent film explores our international obsession with social media and its damaging impacts on human beings. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Clarence. So uh, we... Um, I was scrolling through Facebook while I was watching your, uh, <laughs> your documentary and I immediately put my phone down and I said, I really should not be doing this at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I've, I've had a number of people tell me like, I really tried to not look at my phone while watching your movie and it was really hard. And it's, it's just kind of fascinating to see how... Uh, that, that's the new reality that we live in. We've, we've become so sucked into these devices. It absolutely is. And by the time I got to the end of the documentary, which again was fantastic and everyone should watch it, I was running upstairs and lecturing my children on all, I was giving them Cliff's Notes versions because I knew I couldn't get them. I have older children, 16 and 12, but I couldn't, I knew I couldn't get them to sit down and focus on a documentary for 90 minutes. So I was giving them the Cliff's Notes version. Well, you have to get off TikTok. <laughs> show, show them the film when it's, when it's live. I'd be curious to see what they say. Um, we did a screening of the film at Sundance for high school students. And they were captivated. I mean, we've done countless screenings of our past films, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, with, with uh, students of all ages. Um, and the high school students really embraced this movie in a very, very deep way. I think they recognize and see that these platforms are affecting their daily life. It touches them in a very personal way uh, around teen mental health. Um, and we have a whole scene in the film just dedicated to that. And I think it's something where... Um, uh, I'm very, very optimistic for uh, for after teenagers watch the movie, what their response will be. Yeah, uh, I think they're. Let me just say, I, I think that they're sort of headed there. I'm a um, I'm an internet immigrant because I got online in 1994, before mm. Twitter or uh, Facebook before social media. Um, but I, you know, I was there for sort of the roots of it and what drew people towards it. Um, my daughter's 22 and she's an internet native. So she mm -hmm. grew up with and around social media, both of us around the same time sort of decided to quit Facebook and mm -hmm. she did it totally on her own. Um, and I did it recently because I was getting in these horrible, just like your documentary shows. And, and actually it helped me to, to quit Facebook to tell you the truth. It kind of put the period on the end of the sentence because right. I was getting into these fights with like lifelong friends and it was right. causing me so much stress. And when I right. quit, I immediately felt better. Yeah. You know? But I can't, but like you friends, also friends that you've had for such a long time. And yet it is, these platforms have created a, a rift and division between the two of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but it is immediate and you, you, you cover all this in your documentary, what the, uh, what the algorithms do to your brain and how you become addicted and that they knew that when they created them and how hard it is to break free from it because you're always being pulled back in, you know, yeah. always every second of every day, your brain is going, you know, go back in, get the dopamine right. hit, go back right. in, get the, you know, anyway. I mean, so. the ideal state for the algorithm is that I've got you looking on your laptop and your iPad and your phone at the same time, yeah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. I've just right. fully maximized the attention I can extract from you. I mean, the number of yeah. times I've been, doing something on my computer and my phone at the same time. Like you're, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. 
So Jeff, um, you know, obviously Sasha and I were talking just before we started recording here about uh, what a great filmmaker you are. And we loved uh, Chasing Ice and um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the other Chasing um, Coral. Chasing Coral. Coral, thank you. Yeah, thank so you, you've transitioned from one calamity to another, from climate yeah. change to, to social media. What was that event that spurred you to look at social media as an impact to yeah, our culture? I, I, to be honest, personally, I've always just been interested in what are the biggest problems that we need to address as a society. And climate change has always been at the top of that list. And um, while we were trying to work on how do we fix climate change and address climate change, um, we, we were doing countless screenings of Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral all across the country. And we just kept coming across climate deniers. And it's like, how is there so much denialism? Like the science is so rock solid. Like we know this definitively at this point. And yet there's still massive denialism. And how could it be that some people are just getting different information? And mm -hmm. that's what led us, um, I, I think in a very meaningful way in the back of my mind, it was always like, what's going on here? Tristan, one of our main subjects, he and I had known each other from college. And uh, I saw him posting um, uh, you know, he he went and worked at Google and then he was posting articles on Facebook about how Google is using manipulative design techniques. And I'd never seen of any of my friends who work in the tech industry of which a lot of them, a lot of them do. Um, I had not seen anybody criticize the tech industry, certainly not publicly. And, uh, and that was a big light bulb moment for me. And, um, I started looking into that and started talking with him. Um, and we went down this path and realized that there was a film that needed to be made. And let me actually just add one more thing, because I want to give a lot of credit to Eli Pariser, um, who did a TED Talk in 2011. And he did a TED Talk that was called, I think it was called Beware of Online Filter Bubbles. And mm. in that talk, nearly a decade ago now, he explained how these algorithms can create recursive feedback loops and it can isolate thought. Yeah. And I saw that years ago and I was like, this is scary. Like, this is huge. This is scary. Um, we were working on Chasing Ice at the time. And um, I just kept thinking, like, it was always in the back of my mind. Uh, this is an important subject, but I never knew how to turn it into a movie. And when Tristan and I started speaking uh, in 2017, that's when it was like, okay, I've got an idea for how we can pull this off. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're constantly talking about these feedback loops. Both, you know, unfortunately, Sasha and I are both still on Twitter, and we're we're we're, you know, there's a lot of people out there talking about the election right now, yeah. obviously. And you know, there's these people that are in these little bubbles. Sasha, you're mentioning this all the time about you know, you know, the election will be great as long as you stay inside your Twitter bubble, <laughs> you know, and not yeah. looking in other places. That's a right. that's a great quote. I love that. <laughs> but, you know, it's true because I've been finding that more and more lately. Um, it's actually kind of driving me a little bit nuts is that um, if you step out of it, you're, it's kind of like leaving Scientology. It's sort of like you're, mm -hmm. a, you're an SP or somebody who's hostile to the collective hive mind. And, right. and you're not really, but you're, you're trying to peer. I do anyway every day, sort of try to pierce the bubble by, you know, right. reading other people's. I, I, I don't know if you know this, um, the book, The People Versus Tech. Have you ever heard of that? Um, no, the people versus by, type, um, that yeah. is a book by what is his name? And you should know him. He's he's like Tristan Tristan Harris and and Jaron Lanier. He's one of those guys who um, 
uh, The People versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It by Jamie Bartlett. He kind of covers the same sort of ground nice. um, in, a, in a way. It's a really, really good. But, but one of his recommendations is, you know, get yourself out of the bubble, read other right. people's stuff, you know, talk, you right. know, assume when you're meeting somebody that they have good intentions and that they're good people instead of right. they're your hostile enemies. But but I do find that that it is going to be very disrupting and disturbing to us if we ever if that bubble is ever pierced on a major level, as in say Donald Trump winning <laughs> for the second time. But um, right. but yeah, I mean I. Anyway, your I think your film is a really good way to sort of open that door, and that it's on Netflix, and that you sh- you really vividly show how one person is kind of radicalized by what right. they're reading online and and that that just couldn't be more important right now it's so yeah, thank, like timely that's that's awesome to hear um that you resonate with all of that i of all of the things we spent so much time trying to figure out how to structure the movie and what order and what's the climax and and for me the political polarization was always the biggest thing like that's like we are moving away from any sense of a shared story and a shared reality. And now we are all in our own individual Truman shows, individual customized yeah. versions of reality where your reality and my reality are going to continue to evolve down different trajectories. We're now all on our own little islands of thought. And that's how speciation happens, right? In, in yep. biology, when <laughs> exactly. you physically separate, these become different species and, and based on the, um, the different circumstances that surround a local environment. Now we have uh, ideas that are becoming so incompatible with each other that they can't even converse with one another. Um, so I, uh, that, yeah, that's why that was a really big part of the film for us. There's something else you were just saying a second ago I wanted to uh, comment on. Um, I'm just drawing a blank though. You said something about Having people uh, having forget. good intentions or stepping outside your bubble or piercing the oh, bubble. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, oh, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, stepping outside your own comfort zone in your own bubble. There was an interview that we did with um, Aza Raskin and another one with a woman named Renee DeResta, um, two subjects that are in the film. And they both pointed out to me that um, Russian propagandists were pushing anti-fracking information on social media. And I was like, wait a second, I'm an environmentalist. I have a stance on fracking. Mm-hmm. I, this is what I understand to be true. But what is Russia doing pushing out this content? Yeah. And am I seeing, and then there were, there's a bunch of coverage that was coming out around like, can you spot, there was a New York Times piece. Can you spot the Russian post versus an authentic post? And it was like this right. quiz. And you could like look at all these images or posts. And I couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> I couldn't tell yeah. when something was authentically created by a, a person versus when it was fabricated. Yeah. Um, Russia, we, we now know as of this week, Russia is using even another more sophisticated level of manipulation this year with the election where they're mm-hmm. hiring Americans to write stories for their propaganda machine with uh, Russian editors guiding and nudging these American authors in different oh, ways. Boy. And this is not like Russia hacking Facebook, this is just Russia using Facebook, right? And, and this, is a, this is such a massive systemic problem. This is not something that we can easily just change a couple lines of code and, and solve our way out of it. No, I, you're is, so right. I was like, I was just, I, I just had that thought today and I was like, this is too big. This, this problem is too big. It's, it can't be fixed because I was looking at 
for instance, you took the the moment that George Floyd um, was horribly murdered, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That seconds later, all of this kind of disinformation started hitting Twitter right. with the picture of the cop in a um, white lives, white, something like make white America, make America white again or something like that. A hat. It wasn't mm-hmm. true. It was disinformation. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to start violence on the street, and you wanted to kind of cause that chaos, you could do it so easily by just spreading this and flooding Twitter with this stuff. And we can't do anything about it because we can't confront it because if right. we confront it, we'll be called racist. You know? right. So it's, it's, this, it's too big. Um, there's a, a stat that we have in the film that uh, this, this research that on Twitter lies spread six times faster than the truth. Mm. And if you just think about that one sentence for a second, the truth will never win, right? Right. The truth cannot win in a scenario like that. We have to change the fundamental groundwork to get back to a sense of shared truth. Um, Facebook for a long time, uh, I don't know if this is still their motto, I'd be blown away, but they had this motto for the company, move fast and break things. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what's a more apt uh, kind of yeah. ironic looking back at it in retrospect because they did move fast and they broke a lot of things and <laughs> that's messed up. Like we need yeah. their motto to be move slowly and fix things. Like that's yeah. what we, we need. Where's that tech company that's going to do, um, take their algorithms with, treat their algorithms with the respect uh, that their power commands. Um, how are we going to, think about what's best for society and not what's best for the bottom line. And this is where I, I just, based on everything that I've learned from how these companies operate and how their algorithms are designed and what their algorithms can do. Um, I don't have faith that they're going to, that any of the changes that they're making are going to be meaningful. They're just little PR moves or the little band-aids and the, sh- the ship is sinking and they're plugging a hole with their finger. And, and, there's it's so misaligned with the scale of the problem i I think they need a ground up rewrite i think we need to completely rethink the way we um have social media exist right now um and either that's going to come from within the tech companies or it's going to come from regulation one or the other and And isn't it funny you're talking about that and it sounds like you're talking about climate change it's the same thing like i could say a whole bunch of sentences where the they are isn't it the same though like we have an industry that at one point um it, it, it brought things to us that we just thought were positive and great. And look at the opportunity. Look, we can drive and fly across the country. Look, we mm-hmm. can connect with people from around the world. And only years later do we recognize the consequences of this invisible business model and this, the invisible impacts that it's having on society that are at a full-on existential self-destruction level of, of mm-hmm. concern. Um, yeah, we're heading for this brick wall and there's nothing we can do. I mean, there is stuff we can do about it, but... Solving it. I don't know. Do you know Roy Scranton, um, who writes um, a lot about climate change? He's he has a book about. I mean, his he's very yeah. pessimistic. He's one of those people that we're doomed mm-hmm. and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't turn it around. Um, but it is we're, we are heading for a brick wall in both climate change and um, social media. But it struck me when you were saying that because you're like, we need a rewrite. It's the problem is is so pervasive and and we're all participating in it every day. And you know, it's not going to be solved with just one line of code because. Like you say, if we're all addicted to this, if our brains are addicted, that then we're all 
you know, we're all in this situation of like somebody who's addicted to drugs or alcohol or anything right. else. And you know how hard it is to quit that. It's yeah. just that it snuck up on us. We didn't realize we were doing something subversive the right. way you do if you start taking heroin. You know, you yeah. know that that's, that's potentially yeah. addictive, but would, we just um, walked right into this. I would push back a little bit in that um, I don't think we're heading for a brick wall. A brick wall is so it's on or off. It's, it's a very, um, there's a distinct boundary. I think with climate change and with our technology, um, which, which Tristan has called a climate change of culture, mm. um, they, these are gradients. It's not a singular on-off state. Like there's a gradient of impact. Um, we are dealing with the consequences of our social media technology right now. And if we shut it off immediately today, we still have 10 years of inertia of misinformation mm. that has been sown throughout our civilization, right? It doesn't right. just immediately get fixed if, uh, you know, only truth is coming out somehow. Um, right. And so these are, um, likewise, um, with climate change, it is very much a gradient where we already are in a climate change world. Um, we are experiencing the consequences of climate change that will either continue to get worse or get better as we make changes um, to our infrastructure. Um, I am I am optimistic um, because these are gradients, because of the resiliency of nature and of the human spirit, um, because uh, when we know and identify problems accurately, we can work to solve them and to fix them and to make things better. Um, I think I, uh, if I wasn't an optimist, I wouldn't do this work. I think I'd just, you know, yeah, I would true. just go <laughs> move to a beach somewhere and, and call it good and retire, enjoy the rest of my life uh, and let the world burn around me. Um, but my hope is that we can minimize that, that burning and that destruction and that suffering. The you know, that, that, that came through with Chasing Coral because I know that the science, the books that I've read about climate change, everybody is just sort of flipping out about the, the coral reef, the, bra mm -hmm. the Great Barrier Reef and how it's just dying. Yeah. And, um, and some of them were so hysterical about it, they were actually laughing because they couldn't, they didn't know how else to deal yeah. with this. It was, it was so extreme, yeah. but I did find optimism in your movies actually, when I watched yeah. them, I didn't think that they were doom and gloom um, the way that a lot of the books I read about it. Yeah. You know? um, I met Jane Goodall when I was in high school and uh, she was, uh, I was at a high school in New York and we met the weekend before nine 11 and then nine 11 happened and she was stuck in New York. And we spent some time together and uh, this has been a relationship uh, that has shaped my worldview for the last, you know, nearly 20 years. Um, Jane is out there uh, in a pre-COVID world, 300 days a year out on the road doing lectures and talking about hope and optimism. And I've seen yeah. her talk countless, countless, countless times. And I can recite her entire lecture for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. But um uh, to see her at, um, 80 something years old now, uh, just continuing to fight and, and not giving up. Um, it gave me massive inspiration. Like what well, I've got nothing to complain about. Like she's working pretty hard. You can, you can shut up and keep working a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I don't know, I think that there's, um, it can be challenging to find your sources of hope sometimes. Um, but I think once you find them, like latch onto them and hold on to them and, and, um, and continue to believe in them because that's the only way we're going to make things better. Jaron Lanier has a great line. It, it got a little truncated in the film, but it's a, one of my favorite lines of what he said. And he talks about how, 
um, you know, a lot of people come to him and say, why are you so pessimistic? Why are you so pessimistic about technology and about, about computers and where else is going to go? And he's like, no, I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic. I am a total optimist. I believe this technology can be better. I'm critical because I believe it can be better and it needs to be better. We need the critics. We need people to say, look, wake up. It's the, yes. it's the complacent people that are fine with the status quo. They're the true pessimists. Yeah. And that just hit me so hard. It, it, it just gave me um, such resolve around why, um, why activism is important, why speaking out is important, why, why trying to shine a light on, on issues that, that need more attention, why it's all important. Um, and I hope we captured that, that spirit and that purpose in this movie. I wanted to ask a question about, about COVID-19 and social media's relationship to that. You do touch on COVID-19 within the film, but it's mm-hmm. around the, the misinformation that started yeah. early in the, in the pandemic. Because we are more isolated now than we were six months ago, mm-hmm. because we are, you know, quarantining and hopefully people, you know, staying in homes and staying in smaller groups. Do you think that, you know, are you concerned that that will increase the influence of social media on individuals? It just makes the problem exponentially worse because we're not yeah. talking to people. We're back on our phones. We're forced to be on our phones. Um, I have mixed feelings on this in part because like a lot of people have said to me, Oh yeah, I'm using social media so much more now. And I think the illusion of connection that we get on these platforms has been elevated during COVID time, but it is still an like an illusion. (laughs) It's still not a genuine connection. Um, I haven't used social media for the last two years or so now. I've, because of this project, I've weaned myself off. I was massively addicted um, to Facebook in particular and really, really worked to get myself off, uh, get myself off the platforms. And when COVID happened, I had no urge to go back onto Facebook. I had no urge to use social media. I made more phone calls. I made more FaceTime calls. I spoke to my friends that I haven't spoken to in a while. I, you know, um, really focused on what is real meaningful connection look like. Um, There's a thing called the Dunbar number, which is this uh, researcher assess that humans can only have like a meaningful connection and relationship, like a deep relationship with about 150 people. And we see time and time again, when networks grow beyond 150 people, they start to fall apart, whether it's a company um, or uh, I've heard of many companies that only limit a building to 150 employees and they're going to build a new building. And they don't want to put 300 employees in one building because that's too many for how many people we can actually relate with. Um, these social media platforms are based on this completely false illusion that we can have relationships with an infinite number of people, right? right? And whether or not you have a hundred friends or a thousand friends or 10,000 friends on these platforms, um, it's pushing us towards higher and higher numbers because that's what's better for the bottom line. That's what's better for growth. That's what's better for advertising revenue. If you have a hundred friends now and I can make you have a thousand friends, I just 10x my potential revenue every time you make a post because now 10 times more people can see that post. Um, I, I recognize that many people have gone to social media as a, as a warm, fuzzy blanket during COVID. Um, but I, I question if that's actually providing the real comfort that one is seeking. Um, and, and that's where for me, it's, um, 
I've had even more meaningful relationships with my close family and friends during a time where, uh, where when the world has flipped upside, upside down, um, but it hasn't at all been through social media. Right. You know, um, in, I think it might be Jaron Lanier's book. It, it's, I think it might be his book. Um, by the way, it's, it's, um, I think it's called 10 reasons to delete your social media right now or something yeah, like 10 that. It's, arguments it's, for deleting 10 social arguments. media accounts right now. Yeah. yeah. I've read it like twice all the way through and it's fantastic. Oh, and it, pe- people should really read it for what's happening with the election this year. Cause there's a whole, he does a whole thing on, on, mm-hmm. on the Russians and black lives matter. And that's, that's really important to read. But, but one of the things I didn't know was that, the, the the slot machine um, the mm-hmm. slot machine comparison, which is that they modeled the addiction to the way that they do Vegas slot machines. Like your brain anticipates the dopamine hit, right? So it, it knows that's why they they lag the number of notifications on your Instagram mm-hmm. or Twitter. They you can't just sign on and see your notifications. You have to wait a minute, and so they do that deliberately so that your brain anticipates the dopamine hit because when you get it, it's much higher. Mm-hmm. If you don't get it, you get a deficit. And then once you have a deficit, your brain craves it even more. So you keep returning back to the source to get it back. Mm -hmm. That's a really complex and weird situation to have to deal with. But you feel it if if you keep going back to Twitter. And especially if you're like an antagonistic person on Twitter, you're going to be losing a lot of dopamine. So you're always going to be in that kind of state of like, I have to get it back. Absolutely. Um, We did a a number of interviews of people who spoke about the science as you're as you're describing, um, we weren't able to include all of it in the film just because um, it just started to uh, to take up quite a bit of time. But um, you're making me think I should uh, take some of our outtakes and and make a specific video just on the chemical response in the brain. Um, I, you know, I think it helps people to understand what's happening to them because yeah. I know that when I quit Facebook, I can't even tell you how good I feel. Like yeah. I, it just took away so much despair and agony. And so much of that was, I wrote this thing and people aren't liking it. And that's all it is. It's, I wrote yeah. this thing. That means they don't like me. That means right. I have no friends. That means I'm this horrible person. And when you yeah. shut it out of your life, you just don't have to worry about it. I mean, maybe you worry about it if you walk down the street and you smile at someone and they don't smile back, you know, maybe right. you get it once, you know, every three days or something, but if you're getting it every second of every day, you're, you're, uh, I mean, it, it really does. It, it is doing active harm, I think, yeah. to our brains. So uh, one last question. You, you do end the documentary on, on an optimistic note. And as you've mentioned, you know, here on this podcast, you're an optimist. Since you have finished the film, have you seen any changes that have happened in coming from social media companies to think that to make you think that the right changes are afoot? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I think Tristan's been trying to put a lot of pressure on the companies for a few years now, and more and more people are speaking out, um, whether from inside the companies or uh, externally. And there are lots of small changes that have been happening. You know, Apple putting out screen time reports and Facebook seemingly trying to change their algorithms, even though they arguably might have made them worse. Um, but uh, there are, I, I genuinely believe there are well-intentioned people at these companies. There's just an inherent vice around how it was designed around a business model that op- that profits off of attention and that the incentives are misaligned with society. So for me, the, the hopeful path is that we have to actually change their business model. They need to change their business model. Um, and that would be just a foundational step in a, in a stack of things that need to be done to realign the technology with humanity's needs. Um, I'm optimistic also because 
people recognize they don't want this. Like they, we know when we feel that something is wrong when we engage with these platforms, whether it's affecting us uh, in our own individual mental health or affecting our society. And I, I believe that the next generation of engineers and technologists are not going to want to take part in that. They're going to want to build something better. They're going to want to build something new. Um, and so whether it comes through uh, the Facebooks and Twitters and YouTubes of the world um, willingly making change, or if it comes through um, new technology that people just prefer, um, we're going to see a huge shift. Well, thank you so much for joining Sasha and I here on the podcast. Thank you. And just uh, to our listeners, just as a reminder, Social Dilemma premieres on Netflix on September the 9th. So we all heavily endorse it and think that you should check it out. Awesome. Thank Thanks you so much, much Jeff. Nice yeah. talking to you. Thanks. Great talking to you.